1: Hey, hey, welcome to episode 426 with Laura Gassner-Odding. We are chatting about how you can be limitless. So you'll learn, one, the danger of carrying someone else's scorecard of expectations. Two, what limitlessness looks and feels like in practice. And three, why do you purpose more broadly? So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to stuff we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F426. Now, here's Laura's story. Laura speaks with change agents, entrepreneurs, investors, leaders, and donors to get them past the doubt and indecision that consigned their great ideas to limbo. She delivers strategic thinking, well-honed wisdom, and catalytic perspective informed by decades of navigating change across the startup, nonprofit, political, and philanthropic landscapes. She's had boatloads of cool experiences from being a White House presidential appointee to founding her own organization. So thanks to Laura for hanging out, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out.
2: That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello dot com.
1: Now, here's Laura. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
3: Thank you so much. This is such a better podcast than the How to Suck at Your Job podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that one sort of petered out (laughs) pretty quickly. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to to dig into this stuff and and I want to hear a fun fact about you. You mentioned that uh, you're first mile that you ran in life occurred when you were age 39 what's the story here
3: Yeah. So I was that kid in gym class growing up that had like 497,623 excuses not to go to PE. And I'm old. I'm 48 years old. So there was a time in my life when PE was, you know, all those those stereotypical things that you see like in the 1980s dramas about like the terrible coaches with their whistles and their like polyester shorts. And and I was the one carrying the corner. I was just never athletic. I went to computer sleepaway camp, like for real
1: in the Poconos. We do. I also went to side camp. Did you really? Oh, but the Poconos, that's awesome. Mine was just in Central Illinois. <laughs> wow. I've never met another human being
3: who actually like talks to other human beings who went to computer sleepaway camp. This is amazing. Uh,
1: true. Uh,
3: it was fun. It was fun. We could have a whole podcast just on that. I mean, I was the only girl at computer sleepaway camp and I still didn't kiss a boy until I went to college. So I was, you know, special. <laughs> And so I didn't run a mile. I was, you know, I like lived the life of the mind. I was super nerd and I was never heavy. I was never thin. I was just kind of there. And when I was 39 years old, I was walking into my kid's school one afternoon for some, you know, parent teacher conference or something. And I saw the head of the school and I was like, Ellen, you look amazing. And Ellen was in her mid sixties and she had lost a ton of weight. And I was like, there's, you know, either you've been really sick or there's a new man in your life. And frankly, you look way too good to have been really sick. So what's his name? And she's like, well, actually there is a new man in my life. His name is Mike, coach Mike. And then Ellen proceeds to drag me to the dirtiest, nastiest, like filled with all sorts of like dust and dead bugs gym in a boys and girls club where I do boot camp. And it takes me six weeks to actually run the mile that you have to run at the end of boot camp without stopping or barfing. And when I got to the end of the mile, I was like, I'm going to do this. This is amazing. What if I strung 3.1 of these together and I ran a 5K? So I signed up for a 5K and six weeks later, me and Ellen and coach Mike all ran a 5K. And at the end of the 5K, I thought, what if I ran a 10K? And at the end of the 10K, I thought, what if I did a half marathon? That would be amazing. And at the end of the half marathon, I thought, you know what? I live in Boston. I should do the Boston Marathon. And I came home and I told my husband that I was thinking about doing the Boston Marathon. He told me I was insane. But I said, if I can get a bib in the next five minutes would you support me? Now you have to run Boston as a qualified runner. You have to be fast. I'm not fast. Again, see computer sleepaway camp, right? But what I did was I'd spent the last 20 years working um, with nonprofits and I knew a lot of people who had charity bibs. So I posted on Facebook, hey, anybody have a nonprofit bib that I can raise money for to run the Boston Marathon? And within three minutes, I had five offers. And I turned to my husband, I showed him my iPhone screen with the offers. And he was like, Oh God, you're doing this, right? So at the first 39 years old, I ran my first mile. And by the time I was 41, I'd run three marathons.
1: That's awesome. Well, congratulations. Impressive. Thank
3: you. Well, it's kind of crazy actually, but what that taught me, it taught me where confidence comes from and confidence doesn't come from this idea of Dreaming big dreams. It comes from competence. You put one foot in front of the other, crap the pants, and mm-hmm. next <laughs> thing you know, you've done something and that something leads you to confidence that you can do something else. And so I never thought I'm going to run a marathon, let alone three. I thought I'm going to run and see where that takes
1: me. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, I'm excited. It sounds like you followed some of the advice in your book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. You did some good ignoring. So tell me, just maybe to, to get us going, what's perhaps the most surprising and, and fascinating discovery that you made as you were researching and putting this one together?
3: Well, I would say the most fascinating discovery that I made is that everybody, regardless of how externally happy they seem feels like something's missing. I was really surprised at how broad the range was for the book. I knew that it made sense because it it made sense to me, and I'd been talking about this advice that's in the book for the last 20 years, but I was giving a talk at a conference, a retreat that is specifically for young women of color that work in the education space, millennials working in the education space, and it's a retreat that's run by a friend of mine, and I'm the the only Caucasian person that she's had come speak at this conference because she knows that I hold the space sacred. And I was giving my usual talk about, you know, how do you find your leadership voice and how do you find confidence? And somebody asked me a question and I said, you know, let me answer that by telling you a little bit about this book that I'm writing. And I gave the framework for the book. And at the end of it, these 60 women in this room, these millennial women of color, stood up and gave me a standing ovation, like the first standing ovation of my life. And I was so shocked by that, that I was like, maybe there's something to it. And then I started using this framework in my executive coaching practice, where I was talking to, you know, middle-aged white guys and, you know, stay-at-home moms and boomers that are looking for the next encore in their retirement. And I started hearing people saying things like, I feel like you wrote this just for me. And then you fast forward to when I recorded my audio book. And the sound technician is this guy who is a personal trainer slash thrash hair metal guitarist slash sound technician. And afterwards, I walked out of the two days and he turned to me and he said, I feel like the universe brought you into my life at exactly the right moment. And I don't even believe in that universe crap, but I really needed to hear this. And so the most surprising thing to me was how universal the idea of feeling like we're all limited by everybody else's expectations and everybody else's idea of success and how much People felt relieved to be unburdened by that.
1: Beautiful. Okay. So so that's quite a statement there. So let's hear it again. So we all universally tend to feel limited by others' expectations and what?
3: Everybody assigns ideas to us, right? We're all walking around with a scorecard in our pocket. Marry the right person, go to the right college, get the right job, buy the right house. And who's defining what the right whatever is? And so we're all walking around with the scorecard of other people's ideas, other people's expectations of success. And when we do that, we're so limited by everybody else's ideas, by their expectations, by their definitions, frankly, by their anxiety, by their concerns, by their worry, that we become limited. And it's in these limits that we lose ourselves.
1: Well, yeah, it's funny. I already feel a little bit liberated just hearing, like, hey, you know what? Yeah. Why why do I care at all what some of these people think about this or that?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Where did you get your scorecard from, right? For me, like when I was in fourth grade, a teacher said, you know, you're a pretty argumentative young woman. You should be a lawyer. And of course I told her she was wrong, but Mm. but, but I then spent the next 15 years creating an educational path that put me towards being a lawyer. And when I got to law school and said, I actually hate this I'm in totally the wrong place and I wanted to drop out. I felt like I was failing because this definition of what success would be, go to law school, become a lawyer, suddenly wasn't right for me. And I'd never stopped to think, well, is it actually something I care about? And what's worse is that we're asked to pick these paths. We're asked to pick the direction, the college, the major, the career, the trade, whatever it is that we're doing. We're asked to pick these things when we're 16, 17, 18 years old. And you know what you don't have when you're 16, 17, 18 years old?
1: A frontal lobe. I was going to say, boy, there's lots of things. <laughs> perspective of a frontal lobe. All right. Right.
3: Yeah. You don't have perspective. You don't have wisdom. You don't have <laughs> knowledge. You, you don't have reference. You don't have any other things. But most importantly, you don't have a frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the part of your brain that determines logical decision-making. So we're asked to make a decision about who we are and what we want to be. When A, we don't even really know ourselves, and B, we literally don't have the capacity to make this decision.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's really thought-provoking. So give us some examples here in terms of continual... I guess, limits or expectations that seem to be extra universal and and extra limiting in terms of the biggies.
3: Yeah. So there's the teacher, right? When you're growing up, who says you should do this or you should be that. And that teacher has no crystal ball. They have no Ouija board. They just, maybe they've said something as an aside on some random day and we take it as definitional, or maybe it's a parent Mm -hmm. or a grandparent. After I dropped out of law school and found myself in Washington, DC, the definition of success came to me in the form of of a six foot two nice medical student named Alan, who my mom thought was gonna be the answer to all of my prayers, right? That was definition of success for her, was get married to a nice Jewish doctor. Now, that wasn't Mm. my definition of success because every time I kissed Alan, all I could think of was milk, butter, eggs, cheese. I got to pick up the dry cleaning, got to bring the dog to the groomer. I just, there was no spark. And my mother would say, oh, well, you just have to concentrate. Right? So that wasn't my definition of success, but it was put on me by somebody else. Get married, check that box. Then you fast forward to the boss, right? You're sitting in your office and in your workplace and you're thinking about how you're going to solve a certain problem for a client or to do some project in a way that you think makes sense. But your boss is over there thinking, well, you got to get it done as fast as possible, as expediently as you can with the biggest profit margin that's here. And it may not feel like it's real for you. Throughout my book, I talk about lots of different people who at different points in their career made a major change in order to feel like they were in constant. With, with who they were. And that was a theme that came up over and over again, where people were like, you know, when my boss was saying, just do it, just make sure it's good enough, just do it until the check clears. That's all you need to do. That didn't sit right with who I am as a person. And so I think this sort of young definition, the sort of external pressure to like have the rest of your life in order, and then a boss who might have different ideas of what success means than you do are pretty universal.
1: Well, so by contrast, could you paint a picture for, what does it look, sound, feel like in practice when you are indeed limitless, you have managed to let go of those things.
3: So I want you to think about a time when you were firing on all cylinders. You were at your very best, right? You were making it rain. You were closing a deal. You were just given the presentation of your life, Or maybe it was a quiet moment with a loved one or a colleague going through a difficult situation, or you were working behind the scenes to sort of put the analysis together for a product launch or a budget or something. It could be loud. It could be quiet. It could be public. It could be private. But think about a moment like that, right? You've had those moments where you are absolutely 100%, everything that you do well is being put towards the thing that the problem at hand, right? Can you think about one of those moments? Sure thing, yeah. And how did that feel?
1: Well, it's good. It's good. I want to get a better word for you, though. (laughs) It's limitless. You're saying that feeling is the limitless feeling.
3: Yeah, the feeling that the what you do matches who you are so that the very best of who you are is being brought towards the thing that you care about. It's this frictionless belonging. It's this momentum. It's when you feel like you have wind in your sails. It's when everything is in alignment and in flow, and it just feels right. That's what it feels like to be limitless. And for some people, that comes in the form of staying at home and raising their family, even though they have two master's degrees. And for some, it comes from getting away from those kids as fast as possible and going back to work on the day that you can, right? It's going to look very different for everybody. And at every age and at every life stage, we're all going to define what that success means differently.
1: That's cool. Okay. So now you sort of unpack that into, into a bit of detail in terms of how you, you get there. I'd first maybe want to talk about, would you feel like you got the hooks of, of limit and expectation from another source in you and you'd rather it not be in you? What do you do to find some freedom?
3: Well, I want to say that it can be difficult because we all have sort of expectations of other people that, you know, we have to fulfill, but I think we put a lot of those on ourselves. I think that we think that other people will be deeply disappointed and upset if we change what we're doing. So I think the first thing that I tell people is in the course of 20 years of interviewing people at the top of their game, while I was doing executive search, I never found somebody who didn't make a left turn or a right turn or a U-turn everybody changes what they do at some point. They redefine themselves and they rebuild. Now, there may be plenty of people not the top of their game who don't do that, but everybody that I ever met who was truly a leader was somebody who learned along the way and made adjustments and who saw failure as fulcrum and not finale. Now,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I was speaking a few weeks ago in Austin, and I was talking about this idea of failure being a f- fulcrum and not finale. And I turned to my left, and there is sitting in the front row an astronaut, Commander Tim Copra, who had been on not one, not two, but three spacewalks. And I, I, in the middle of doing this bit, and I was like, oh, except for you, sir. <laughs> For you, failure would most definitely be finale. But for the rest of the 400 people in this room, failure is absolutely fulcrum. And so I think the first thing for people to do is to let go of this idea that failure is bad, that failure is going to be something that kills us. If failure literally doesn't kill you, if there is still breath left in your body, you can learn from it and and do something else. And so once we let go of this desperate need to please everybody else and to live into everybody else's idea of success, once we decide that it's okay to fail at living into their expectations, that's when we start making room for our own idea of success. And once we start thinking about what success can mean to us, and I break that out in this framework in the book, once we unpack what success actually means to us, then success can, in fact, equal happiness.
1: Okay, that's good. You talk about this concept of consonance and have a few particular drivers of it. Can you define these terms for us?
3: Yes. So what I started to notice throughout my executive search career is that even though I was interviewing people as I said were at the top of their game and who were super successful they weren't all really happy and I was struck by this idea that after you've filled in all the check boxes and you've done all the right things why do we still feel empty why do we still feel like there's something that's missing that we're just not quite satisfied about and what I started to notice was that the people who were the most successful and also the happiness the, the happiest the ones who had who weren't suffering from burnout and stress and fatigue they were the ones who were in constant They were the ones who were in alignment and flow so that everything they did made sense. And I started to notice that they had really four things. And each of them had these four things in different amounts, but they had them in the amounts that they needed. And the first is calling. And calling is some gravitational force, something that's bigger than you. It could be saving the whales and curing cancer and, you know, feeding the poor that's fine. But it can also be working for a leader who inspires you or a company whose brand is prestigious and interests you. It can be getting out of debt. It can be buying a Maserati in a beach house. It can be building your own business. It can be staying home with your family. It's whatever that calling is, it's your calling. And I think we get calling wrong often because we tend to give votes to people who shouldn't have them, right? We have all these people in our lives and we ask them what they think and what we should do and and they reply to us based on the framework of their own thinking. And so we're giving votes to people who shouldn't even have voices. So that's calling. Okay. The second piece is connection and connection really answers the question. What if you didn't go to work tomorrow? What if you didn't get out of bed tomorrow? Would anybody notice? Would it matter? Does your work matter? Why do you, in this box, in this organizational chart, in this company, at this moment, why do you matter? Can you see the work that you're doing connecting to solving that that calling, to getting to that calling that you want to achieve? The third piece is contribution. And while connection is all about the work, contribution is really all about you. We all want our work to mean something, to contribute something to our lives, but what? So does the work contribute to the, the career trajectory and the velocity you'd like to create? Does the work contribute to the lifestyle you'd like to live? Does the work contribute to your ability to manifest your values into the world on a daily basis? And then lastly is control. And control really is how much personal agency do you want and need? in your life so that the work can connect and that it can contribute to the kind of calling that you want to serve. And so at every age and at every life stage, we're going to want and need and have these different, the four C's of calling, connection, contribution, and control in different amounts.
1: It's actually, so you mentioned different amounts and uh, I think I want all of them and a lot of them. <laughs> so are you suggesting that there's trade-offs between them or or, or how do you think about that?
3: I think there are sometimes trade-offs. I think it is possible to want and have lots of all of them, but I think at different ages and at different life stages, we're willing to sacrifice one for the other. So when I was 21 years old and worth my weight in ramen soup and idealism, uh, I was volunteering on a presidential campaign and I had all the calling in the world. I was so inspired by this leader, but connection, I mean, please, I was gophering coffee right i was making xerox copies I, I had no my work didn't connect whatsoever nothing i did really mattered there were 700 other volunteers ready to walk in the door just like me but that was okay because i had so much contribution i was manifesting my values on a daily basis and while i wasn't really earning any money i was like i said worth my weight in ramen soup i knew that if this guy won i could have a pretty interesting job and talk about a career trajectory that would be amazing but then you go to control clearly i had no control whatsoever ever about how much connection the work had or how much contribution it had, but boy, it didn't matter to me because calling and contribution were absolutely top of what I needed when I was young and I didn't you know, have a family or major bills to pay and, and, and I could live in squalor and be perfectly fine. Now, as I'm 48 years old, it's a little bit of a different story, right? I mean, calling, I really do want to continue to do good things in the world, but my calling right now is really building out this book launch and bringing my message to people. And so I feel that deeply, which means that my connection, because I'm on several nonprofit profit boards because I've got two teenage kids because I've got a husband with a, a a completely inflexible job and I have friends that live all over the world I could be doing lots of other things with my time so if the work that I'm doing if the podcasts that I'm on if the speaking that I'm doing if the research that I'm doing the writing I'm doing isn't helping me get this book off the ground in a way that is that is supporting my speaking career then it's it's not interesting to me right so I really deeply need my work to be connected in terms of contribution I'm able to bring tons of how I manifest my values in Thor because clearly I talk about them nonstop. So I'm getting a piece of that. But in terms of how this is going to create a career trajectory for me, I have no idea. This is a brand new career and it's super fascinating. So I'm weighing those things differently. And then in terms of control, I'm an entrepreneur deep in my soul. So I absolutely have to have control over the connection and the contribution, but I'm also willing to give up a little bit of it right now because I'm on this momentum path to get this book launch going, and so it's very different for me right now. And if I were, you know, 68 years old, it may be a totally different thing because I may say I couldn't care less whether or not my work, you know, the work I'm doing really matters or contributes. But you know, I deeply care about changing the world because I was born in 19, you know, 40s and or in the 1950s, and I'm a kid of the of social justice and those things I care most about. And so, I think everybody at different ages and at different life stages will care about these things differently. But I think we get into trouble because we sort of set our scorecard in stone early on and we're told to think about the value of the job but we don't think about the value of the job to us individually and we don't let that flex and change
1: understood so i'm curious then when it comes to all the means by which you can discover and and develop and, and bring about some more calling connection contribution and control are there any particular practices that that You've seen again and again really seem to make a real big impact in terms of bringing about more of the consonants.
3: So I put together a quiz at limitlessassessment.com, and I'll say that again, limitlessassessment.com, where your listeners can actually go and take. It's about sixty questions or so, and it takes about ten or fifteen minutes. And it walks the respondent through each of the four Cs of calling, connection, contribution, and control. And at the end of which, it gives them this very pretty little radar chart that I'm go computer sleepaway camp because I'm very happy that I'm very proud of myself for learning how to, how to build this. It gives this beautiful radar chart that shows one circle of each of the four C's, how much you have in your life, and then another one overlapped we hope, um, of each of the four C's of what you want in your life. And it actually will show you visually where you're out of consonance and give you some tips about things that you need to do. And so for everyone, it's going to be a little bit different, but I think the right first moves, first of all, go take the quiz. Absolutely. It will tell you exactly what you're looking for and and not just what society wants you to have, but what you actually want to have and how to get there. But the second thing is to really start pulling the people around you. I call them your family. It's the sort of combination mm-hmm. of your friends and your family who can be your tribe, who can be the ones who you can talk to about your results of the quiz, about the things that you want, about what you might think are missing, and really sort of help reflect to you and hold you accountable to making sure that you're doing something every day towards the change that you want to make.
1: Very cool. Well, maybe just to wet the whistle, would get an example there, If if we want some more control, Uh, What are some great things to do that help bring that about?
3: So as I mentioned, I'm an entrepreneur and I think that most of the entrepreneurs who I've seen who have taken this quiz have found that they are very much in consonance in, in the control piece because I think they've made very specific decisions in their life to make that happen. I profile a woman by the name of Tara Diab in my book and she's a carpenter by trade. She actually started working for her brother-in-law when she was uh, very young and she would just follow all the other carpenters around on the job site, picking up nails and cleaning paintbrushes and anything that they asked them to do. And she loved it. She absolutely loved the work. And so she went to go work for him. And And she was having a great time doing it. The work was done. He would say to her, if you leave at the end of the day and you don't feel proud of your work, like you got to go back and do it again. This is really important. And then as his business grew and grew and grew, she found that that ethos that respect for getting the job done well wasn't actually shared with all of the, the site managers that he hired. And she found herself increasingly frustrated because she thought that the work could be done better and should be done better and that the clients deserve better. And so she started her own thing. I mean, she says that she ate barbecue sauce and mashed potatoes for months in order to be able to afford to continue to put money towards building out her business. But she's now booked 12 months in advance all the time. Her dance card's always full and she absolutely has 100% control over the way that she does her work, the quality that she does it, the the way that she can manifest her values through her work, and how much money she makes or doesn't make by how much work
1: she decides to take on. That's awesome. Cool. Thank you. Well, I'd also love to get your take when when folks are saying, you know, Laura, I love this. I'm right on. I want to get more limitless. I want more consonants. What's one what of the biggest mistakes that people end up making when they are, are going after this stuff?
3: I would say that the number one biggest mistake that people make is that they say, I want more consonants, I want my work to have meaning. And then they say, well, meaning has to have purpose and purpose has to be purpose, like higher purpose, lofty purpose. And they assign these ideas to it, which are either, well, I actually want to make money. So I don't really want to go do that purpose thing. Or maybe I'll do that purpose thing later. Or I don't know if that purpose thing is for me. And again, I spent 20 years helping people find work in purpose in nonprofit jobs. And what I'll say is that it's really great to go do that work, but it's also not necessarily right for everyone. What I'm trying to say is that the only person who gets to decide what your purpose is, is you.
1: Gotcha. Well then, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
3: Oh, well, so my favorite quote, I always have to go to Eleanor Roosevelt, which is, you know, do the thing you think you cannot do. I think that we all have multitudes inside of us and I never thought I was an athlete, right? We started this conversation by talking about my first mile at 39. And here's the thing that happens when you run three marathons in three years having never run a mile before is that you tend to get a little beaten up. And so I went from running a marathon to going to a gym, joining a gym for the first time in my life and and meeting a trainer and lifting weight. And this trainer happened to be a guy who's training for like an Olympic rowing campaign. And he kept talking about rowing. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I should check that out. And fast forward a few years and now I'm a competitive rower. I row at a local competitive women's rowing team. And every time we're on the water, the coach comes over in his little boat and he's like, okay, athletes, here's what we're gonna do now. And I'm always like, athletes? be an athlete. That's hilarious. But I never knew that that's who I was. And so I think if we continue to do things that we think we cannot do, we're able to find multitudes within us and we're able to surprise ourselves at just what we can become.
1: And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research?
3: Well, I think the marshmallow test is fascinating. Um, Do you know the marshmallow test? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I have two teenage boys, so we live the marshmallow test in our house all the time. But this idea that sometimes if you can wait... Right. And sometimes it's sacrificing the easy win now for the thing that you really want later. You don't have the one marshmallow that you can have now. If you wait five minutes, you get two. I think that that's what I saw so many times in my career and executive search that the people who had tenacity and grit and hunger and speed and weight, these were the things that I looked for in people. And I'll be darned if, if I didn't have a hundred percent marshmallow test winners in the people that I placed in <laughs> these. CEO positions.
1: That's good. And how about a favorite book?
3: So this is kind of weird, but my favorite book, I think the one that was one of the most impactful books for me is this book called Stones from the River by a woman named of Ursula Hege, uh H-I-E-G-I. And it's a little bit of a weird book. It's a fiction book that was set in World War II, and it's about a dwarf named Trudy Montag. And Trudy, because she was atypical, was pretty much ignored by everybody and dismissed by everybody. And so she would be sort of present for lots of conversations where people just forgot she was there because they didn't think of her as like a full human being. And because of it, in the story, she gets to hear all of these state secrets, and she gets to sort of infiltrate the Nazis and she's able to work with the resistance and help them to topple the Nazis. Again, it's a fiction book, but just to help them topple the Nazis in World War II. But I love the idea that we are not just who everybody sees us as, and that we have so much inside of us that we can be that people don't even yet know about. And we're the ones who get to decide our stories.
1: And how to favorite tool so that helps you be awesome at your job.
3: Delegating. (laughs) I am a firm believer that I am not the best person at everything and that there are things where I really do truly kick ass. And that if I don't hire people to do the stuff that I suck at, then I never get to spend the time doing the stuff where I can kick ass.
1: And how about a favorite habit?
3: Every night before I go to bed, I look at my schedule for the next day. I just, I cannot sleep well if I don't know when I have to shower the next day. That's sort of a strange way to put it. But as an entrepreneur, somebody who works from my home, there are days that are yoga pant days and there are days that are stiletto heel days. And if I don't know exactly when I need to be show pony ready, (laughs) if I'm not ready for public consumption, I I have a very hard time having gravitational force in my world. Before I go to bed every night, I just scan through my next day and I just figure out when I'm going to shower.
1: Lovely. <laughs> so funny because um, some days I don't make it to the shower. And if I had a ritual, <laughs> it'd probably be more consistency.
3: Yeah. You know, those days where you wake up and you put on your exercise clothes, but you never quite exercise because you didn't put it in your calendar. I mean, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist in the world. I literally have on my calendars the days where I have to pick up my kids from school because I will forget because I don't pick them up every day. Maybe I just smoked too much weed in college, but I can't remember anything unless it's on my calendar. So the calendar is really, I'm not one of those people who lives and dies by my inbox. That doesn't take over. I don't feel this need to answer every email I get every minute of the day as soon as I get it, but I need to have a roadmap. And for me, the calendar is the thing.
1: And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your audience and you hear it quoted back to you frequently?
3: Yeah. I think one of the things that gets quoted back to me most is a quote that I said about a year ago on stage where I was kind of Railing about this vacation that I was about to take, and I posted something on Facebook asking for tips. Does anybody know anything about wherever it was that I was going? And somebody wrote back, I'm so glad you're going on this vacation, you deserve it. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I don't deserve it, I earned that, baby. Like, I don't deserve it. And so I said, If I waited around my entire life for all the things I deserved, I would never get what I demanded. All right, and that gets quoted back to me a lot.
1: And if folks want to learn more, or get in touch, where would you point them?
3: So I am all over the socials at HeyLGO. It's Hey, Laura Gassner Odding. So HeyLGO. HeyLGO.com is how you can find me um, on my website. The book is Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. And it's on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, anywhere fine books are sold. And the quiz is at LimitlessAssessment.com.
1: And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
3: I would ask people three questions. Number one, what would it feel like to be limitless in your job? Number two, what do you need to change in order to get there? And number three, what would be the cost if you don't?
1: Laura, this has been a treat. Thanks so much. I wish you lots of luck with the book Limitless and and all your adventures. Thank
3: you so much. It's been great fun.
1: And thanks to Laura for those nuggets of wisdom and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Laura's take on frictionless belonging, I think that's just a great phrase in terms of diagnosing what's up in terms of are you in a limitless flow state or are you not? And and what's the holdup? Is it more about the friction? Like I'm I'm frustrated because I'm bumping my head up against this wall that's not working and it's silly or I just hate doing this task. It's in my weaknesses or resources in there, kind of whatever. Is there friction? that's unpleasant as opposed to a fun challenge kind of a situation. Is there friction? And is there belonging in terms of, oh, do you feel like, oh, I just don't quite fit in here. It's like, oh, folks don't seem to like whatever. And I'd say, hey, be careful to see if that's the reality or just a negative mood, self-talk thing going on. But I think that's pretty handy in terms of, hey, I'm not flowing. Hmm. I guess I'm not in frictionless belonging. So more so because there's friction or more so because there's not so much belonging? So I found that helpful. Hope you did. too. And Doug, the stuff from Laura, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F426. If you haven't already, I hope you'll punch subscribe. If you do, will catch our next guest. It is Tamara Lore, and she is talking about this balance thing and how you do it or don't do it. Hope to catch you there. Peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full-text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency-covered.